Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Now here's Pastor J.D. Griffin. We're in a new series of talks that we're calling Buckets, Not Balloons. All right, Buckets, Not Balloons. And really what we're talking about, you can boil it down to this, is that we really believe that God has called us here. Every single one of you is right where God wants you to be to see transformation happen. Like our city has been created for a God purpose. Amen. And we're a part of that story. And what we want to do is just come alive to what God is doing around us. And so we said, you know what, being a person that brings the story of Jesus into a place where maybe it has not been heard, where it's not being experienced, is not about an impromptu water balloon fight. It's actually about saturated people going into dry places and then them being saturated. And that's what this whole series is about, is God, would you come and saturate us so that when we enter dry places, that those dry places would then in turn be saturated. That, that's what this whole thing's about. And if you were here last week, you saw that I actually had a couple of gallons of water poured on me. All right? If you didn't see that, guess what? We have video now. Holla at your boy. So you can check us out on YouTube, all right? And you can go watch it because if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go and experience that message because really everything we're talking about today hinges upon that truth, that we have to be saturated before we're sent. That the heart of God was that we would, in Matthew 28, go and make disciples everywhere. And he fueled us in Acts 1 by saturating that church as they were sent. We're supposed to be saturated as we are sent so we can go and make disciples everywhere, right? If you go, if you're sent and not saturated, what happens? You dry up. If you're saturated and not sent, what happens? You blow up, right? So we have to be saturated as we are sent. And so today we're really going to talk about that Matthew 28 beginning, which is that we're to go and make disciples everywhere. We're supposed to go and make disciples everywhere. And how we're going to do that is we're going to talk about what I like to call the compassion gap. Can everybody say that with me? The compassion gap. Can you say it like you're in high school? The compassion gap. Because you actually are in a high school right now. How many of you got kids? Anybody got kids in the house? Anybody got kids? How many of your kids are back in school? Come on. And the honest parents said amen. My whole life, I loved summer. I loved it. I loved everything about summer. Even as a college, you know, even after I graduated from college, I still loved summer. Because I just love the rhythm of summer, right? I love the barbecues. I love the water parks. I love the beach. I just love summer. I couldn't wait for summer to come. I was so excited. Even when I was working full time, it didn't matter. I still loved summer. And then I had kids, and my kids became school age. And then I started praying that summer would end. Right? I was just like, oh, God, please, like, move the calendar forward. I can't. 
Right? I mean, it's just like summer has taken on a different feel being a parent. All right? Now, but school has started. School started in the Griffin house. It started on Thursday, and we could not be more excited about it. Um, we're, we're so pumped up. But this was a special first day of school for the Griffin family because you have to understand, now we have a sixth grader. Okay, this is the first day of middle school. Okay? Sophie, I love you. You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're going to change the world. But starting middle school, I mean, welcome to awkward is now normal, right? I mean, that's... Like middle school, it can be a very challenging place. And so there's all, I mean, the first day of school jitters are real. No matter if you're going into your senior year in college or if you're launching into your sixth grade year, right? I mean, this, there's something about the, what we don't know makes us nervous. And it's like, who's going to be in my classes? And how is this all going to work? Then you compound it. You're in a new school. And you got to be cool. And you get, you know, you get one shot to make a first impression by talking to anybody this morning, right? So it's just like, you know, first day of school, middle school, it's happening. And I got to just just praise my wife real quick. She did an amazing job. That chaotic, let's get into the off-to-school first-day rhythm was so smooth because of her preparation and planning. It was amazing. Like, sandwiches were made and already in the fridge. You know, it was like that kind of a morning. It could not have gone better until we're in the drop-off line. Not we. I wasn't there because it wouldn't have happened if I would have been there. I'm just going to be honest with you. Liz, yeah, those are fighting words. Go ahead. Go ahead and judge me. Right in front of the middle school, in the drop-off line, going five miles an hour, Liz hears, looks behind her, sirens going on. She's like, what's happening? Like, there's no way that I'm getting pulled over. Like, I'm literally getting ready to pull into the parking lot of the school Surely they're just trying to get around me or something. And then all of a sudden it becomes clear, no, they're, they're pulling you over. So they're so close. Liz pulls over in the parking lot of the middle school. Sophie, my cute, precious, perfect little sixth grader, begins to slide down behind the dashboard, right? I mean, can it get any worse, right? Your mom is the mom that gets pulled over first day of school in the parking lot, right? You only get one first impression. This is my first impression. I'm a criminal. My family's a life of crime. You know, I mean, just like, and so it just horrified. Liz is like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, I wasn't on my cell phone. I definitely wasn't speeding. I was going five miles an hour in the drop-off line. Like, did I miss a sign? Like, like, what is going on? The police officer comes to the passenger or to the driver's side window and, and says, ma'am, do you know what you did wrong? She was like, you know, honestly, officer, I have no idea what I did wrong. And he goes, well, a few feet back, there's a crosswalk. And across the street on the other side was a student that was getting ready to get onto the crosswalk. And you didn't yield when he was close to entering the street. Really? I mean, I can understand speeding, absolutely. I, I can understand the kid was in the street, Liz buzzed him, pull her over. <laughs> but we're talking about getting ready to get close to the curb to enter the street on the other side of the street. I'm in the drop-off line, and you're pulling me over for this first day of school? Sixth grade? 
like, come on, dude. Like, you know what I'm saying? So Liz calls me, and I'm not frustrated at Liz at all. You know who I'm frustrated at? I'm frustrated at the police officer. I'm like, really, bro? Like, really? Where's the compassion? Failure to yield? Really? Like, how in the world are you not going to take into context everything that was going on that day and just like first day of school trying to figure it out? You're going to pull her over? Really? And all the rule followers in the house are like, yeah, really? You break, you know, you do the crime, you do the top, right? I mean, like, but all the rule breakers in the house are with me. They're like, really? Like, did, do we have to go through all of that for a failure to yield? Like, pulled over, lights spinning. Sophie won't even get out of the car. First day of school, sixth grade. Unfortunately, I think that most people view the church like we're all viewing that cop. They feel like we're camped out, watching them do their thing, not understanding the full context of what's happening, and just trying to snipe them by the letter of the law. We wonder why people sometimes have a weird vibe that comes on them when they find out that you're a Christian. Maybe you don't experience this. This is my life, right? Everybody, like, you get in that normal conversation. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm in software sales. Like, everybody in Austin, right? I'm like, who buys this stuff? Everyone's selling it. Who buys it, right? What do you do? I'm in software sales. Oh, cool. Right? And then it comes to me. What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Immediately, everything changes. People begin to apologize. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they change how they talk. They, they, they change the stories they're telling. Like, everything begins to shift when they find out that I'm a pastor. Like, why does that happen? This is why it happens. It's because I am tired of people being tired of feeling like the church is a police officer that's looking for them to make a mistake so that they can say, see? No, because that, that seems to be completely opposite of how Jesus lived. There's, like, zero connection to that kind of general understanding of, of, of what Christians are today and how Jesus modeled for us to live. Like Jesus somehow was able to be crystal clear with people, but they didn't feel policed by him or judged by him or rejected by him. They, they actually drew close to him. And I think that that gap that we might be living in, some of us right now, we, that space between how Jesus lived and, and kind of how we're trying to figure out how to live, that, that space I like to call the compassion gap. Because what I want us to begin to understand this morning is that when the world happens in front of you, when you're in a non-church environment, we'll just leave it there. When you're in a non-church environment and non-church activities begin to happen around you, right? It's not complicated. Just have compassion. Can I say that again? When you're hanging out at work and people begin to make jokes and you're like, I don't know what to do right now. 
do I laugh at that joke? I don't agree with that joke. Like, or they're like, oh, man, look at this picture. You're like, do I close my eyes when they show me that picture? Like, like what am I supposed to actually do? And we get stuck in this, like, what do I do loop? And, and this is why most of us live in what I like to describe as holy bubbles, where all we know is Christians, and all we interact with are people that believe what you believe. And we don't have any relationships with people outside of our bubble, but we are very determined to hurl our opinions outside of the bubble. And people don't feel known. They don't feel loved. They just feel judged. Right? It's not complicated. It's just compassion. And, and the thing is, is that I think most of us hear things like 1 John 2.15 that says, don't love the world nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're clear but clueless all at the same time. We're like, cool, don't love the world. But I'm in the world. Like, so how does this actually work? Like, how can I work in an environment that's worldly? How can I be surrounded by people who don't follow Jesus, that are living like they don't follow Jesus, and be in that environment and, and not project this like police officer mindset, but for them to experience compassion. Like, have you ever wondered actually how you do that? And, and not just like read it and go, cool, 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 but really go, how am I supposed to be in the world and not of the world? Like, how am I literally supposed to go throughout my life, my day, my normal day interacting with people that I see on a regular basis and for them to experience compassion and not judgment? That they feel that I'm absolutely different in what I hope for, believe in, and experience, but at the same time 100% approachable with how they're different than me. How, how do we live in the world, but not of the world? Jesus never had this problem, which is amazing, because he was fully man. He was 100% like us. He felt everything that we feel. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted. Like, he was one of us. So much so that it says in Hebrews 4 that we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet did not sin. Jesus was the perfect picture of in the world, yet not of the world. He was so not of the world that he was perfect without sin, untouched by the things that we can't say no to, yet was so in the world that the religious of the day, the churchgoers of the day looked at him and said, this dude is a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's a friend of sinners. So how did Jesus being fully God, fully man, did not sin, live in such a way that he was seen by everybody who was trying to do right, 
as being somebody who was doing wrong. Like, how did that happen? Like, how did that actually work? I think we get a window into how it worked in, in this beautiful story in Luke 7. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you. We're going to be here for a little while. Luke 7, we're going to start in verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. Somehow, Jesus loved people that were in the world so well that they didn't feel policed by him but welcomed to know him. Luke 7, verse 36, this is what it says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she started wiping them with her hair. And she kissed them and then she poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I want you to understand something before we rush to judgment over the Pharisees. Because it's important to understand the context and the revolution that Jesus was beginning with the way that he lived his life. What is known as the Old Covenant, which is a fancy way of just saying life before Jesus, before the cross, before what we experience and this ability to receive the forgiveness of Jesus and for the blood that he shed on the cross to wash over us, to cleanse us, to forgive us of our sin, to heal us of our brokenness. Therefore, we can approach the throne room of grace with confidence before that reality became our reality, the old covenant was a system put in place by God to reveal the need for Jesus. And that old system basically had a few very clear rules to follow. The most important was you must remain clean. You, you have to be Clean, And what that meant to them was is that we don't touch anything, hang out with anybody, or engage in any circumstance that is outside of the perfect will of God. Now begin to understand, even in that statement, the brokenness of this system that points to our need for a Savior is that the old religious structure was one of what I do determines how close I can get to God. And Jesus is making it clear in his response to this woman we're going to get into in a minute is that it doesn't matter what you've done. You can come close to me because of what I've done. And this is the power of the compassion gap. This is grace. This is, this is not complicated. This is just have compassion. And Jesus looks at this woman. I mean, you, you can just feel it. I mean, you can feel the compassion that Jesus has for her and his responses 
to her and to the Pharisees that were judging her and him. Because I want you to hear what Jesus says. First, he wants to to address the misunderstanding of this moment. Jesus answers him. Notice that Simon thought this. He didn't say this. He thought this. Think about that. That would trip you out. You're hanging out in a party. You have a thought. Someone comes up to you and answers your thought. Make me want to check my thoughts. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell me, tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And he said, you have judged correctly. When you're aware of what you've been rescued from, that's a different kind of worship. When you know what you have been saved from, nobody has to tell you to worship. No one has to tell you to be bold. No one has to encourage you to raise your hands. No one, no one has to say maybe you should shout for praise. When you're aware of what you deserve and what you got, worship happens. It, it, just, it, it's, it just happens. It's not complicated. It's just compassion. When, when you're thankful for what Jesus has rescued you from, then all of a sudden you find yourself in spontaneous worship moments that make no sense. I mean, this is what happened to this woman. She had encountered somebody who said, I don't care that you're dirty. I'm going to make you clean. Man, when you come to face to face with the reality of the God who looks at you and says, I love you right now while you were a sinner, I died for you. Not when you had it together, but when you were blowing it up. I loved you. I believed in you. I was compassionate towards you. My heart ached for you. When, you. when you're aware of the God that loves you so big, that his love is so strong, it's so scandalous, you're going to do foolish things because you're just thankful. You can't contain yourself. This is why I love getting lost in worship and dwelling on how I've been changed. Because there's this weird thing that happens to every single one of us. The longer we walk with God, the more we forget what life was like before God. You could say it like this. There's a little Pharisee in all of us. Because we all begin to shrink down our encounters with Jesus to a list of things we do and things we don't. That, that's, what, that's a religious mindset. Religion is simply just, I'm going to create a structure that's going to allow me to be close to God. Jesus said, 
It's relationship with me that draws you close to the Father. It's not a structure. It's not a list of things we do and a list of things we don't. Because here's what religious mindsetted people do. They create ranking systems for their list of don'ts. And we begin to rank ourselves on how we're doing based on how people are doing around us. And we're like, yo, well, you know what? I'm not sleeping around anymore. Godly. But you judge everybody and you're angry and mean as a snake. Who said that that is not as bad as that? Who told you that? Like, who, who said it's okay for us to have a reputation of being hateful and that's okay when Jesus said, love your enemies? Like, for real, who told you that? Who told you it's okay for you to throw bullets at people who are doing exactly what they should be doing apart from relationship with Jesus? Living lost. They're going to be messy. It's going to be messy. Right? So... We begin to think we're better than them because our sin, we're like, well, it's not as bad. I just yell at my kids. That's not as bad. Well, I just hold deep bitterness and resentment towards my ex-wife. That's not as bad as, uh, you know, having an affair. So I'm just going to roll with that one. I'm cool with that one because affair is worse. Who said that? This is why nobody wants to come to church. Not because of Jesus. Because they don't understand this rules ranking system that says that this is okay and this is not okay. People are frustrated at religion. They're not frustrated at Jesus. People are frustrated at a rules of do's and don'ts, a list of do's and don'ts. They're not frustrated at a group of people that genuinely have a relationship with Jesus because your relationship with Jesus will keep you soft. Religion makes you angry and hard. Your relationship keeps you soft. And you want to know how you stay soft? You remember that you've been through some stuff and God rescued you out of some stuff. Because check out what happens. He looks at this woman. He turns to the woman. I love this. He puts value on her. Because, you know, have you ever been to a party and somebody does something awkward? Nobody even wants to look at them? Come on, for real. You ever been in an environment and something awkward goes on? You're just kind of like, oh, that's not happening. How are you? I'm good. Right? That's, just, that's human nature. Jesus says, I'm going to look at you. He puts value on her. He says, I see you. His body lets her know, I see you. He looks at her. And then he tells Simon, the dude that was judging him. He says, do you see this woman? He makes Simon look at her. Look at her. She's a person. She's got feelings. Look at her. I came into your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered had not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins 
have been forgiven and her great love has shown. Now this next sentence defines how we close the compassion gap. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. But whoever's been forgiven much loves much. Don't forget that you've been forgiven much. It's not complicated. You were there. It, it might have looked different, but you've been there. Compassion. Compassion. What's amazing to me is that I've been forgiven. Do you know how much of a screw-up I am? How I have a tendency to get angry? I'm a perfectionist. I get lost in my head. I have a short fuse. I can have a reputation of someone who doesn't have grace versus someone who does. I'm a mess. But his grace is enough. You see, that's relationship. Relationship is his grace is enough. Religion is, I can't believe you act like that. His grace is enough. Our city is waiting for saturated people to engage them with compassionate kindness. Not judgmental anger. Compassionate kindness, saturated people engaging dry places with compassion and kindness, with smiles and hope. This is amazing. You know what's so crazy is that the church has always dealt with this this temptation to drift to being religious and not walking in relationship. Paul addresses the church in Rome with this scripture in Romans 2 in a letter to them it's like he's talking to us he says you therefore have no excuse you who have passed a judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judged another you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, begin to judge, put past judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? It's his kindness. It's his compassion. It's not my job for you. It's his job to bring clarity. It's his job to bring judgment. It's his job to bring transformation. It's his job to bring healing. Our city is waiting for a group of people that want to introduce him to them. They want to say Jesus wants to help you. And he doesn't care how dirty you are. He doesn't care how messed up you are. He wants to help you. There's compassion in this house. We're going to be known for a lot of things. 
and one of them is going to be compassion that you can show up in this place right off the street you can step out of a lifestyle of prostitution you could be one day clean from drugs you could be in the middle of getting sober you could be right smack dab in the middle of getting your lifestyle redeemed into something righteous and we're going to be like hey we're glad you're here because it's not complicated we just have compassion because when people encounter the living God, he'll do what he's done for you. You were changed because you got in the presence of God. You were healed because you got in the presence of God. You were transformed because you got in the presence of God. He's the healer. He's the transformer. He's the one that can right wrongs. He's the one that forgives sins. So we don't have to try to walk around and police everybody. We just got to walk around and in introduce everybody to the God of compassion, the God of grace. So you can look at an environment and you could be like, man, this is jacked up. His grace is enough. Wow, this makes me uncomfortable. His grace is enough. But I don't know what to say right now. His grace is enough. I don't know how I'm supposed to interact with this right now. I don't know how I'm supposed to like live right now. His grace is enough. It's compassion. It's his kindness that's going to lead to repentance. Come on, y'all ain't going to talk to me right now. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. We will be a church that is saturated, that walks into dry places and leaves them saturated. And the boat wake of that saturation is going to be compassion. The boat wake of that encounter is going to be, I've never met anybody who was so different than me, that was so kind to me, that was so clear with me, but so compassionate with me. This doesn't mean that we just look past sin. It just means that we tell people, it's not my job to tell you how you live your life, but I think you should probably check out how Jesus tells me to live my life because I can tell you what happened to me is that Jesus changed me, that I had desires that were outside of his desires, and he began to change them as I got into this book. And so, hey, let's read this book together. Compassion, kindness, clarity, saturated people going into dry places and them leaving saturated. Can you stand to your feet? First John 4.19 is our starting point. If you feel like you're the woman in the story, if you feel like you're the Pharisee in the story, if you feel like you're somewhere in between, we all start in the same place. First John 4.15 we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. John 3.16, the most famous scripture in all the world, made super famous by Tim Tebow. May he rest in peace on the NFL. For God so loved the world. For God so judge the world for God was so angry at the world no God was so love the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life God so loves you God so loves you right now so loved by the living God 
right now, no matter what got you in here, no matter how jacked up you feel, so loved. No matter if you feel like the Pharisee in the story or the woman that was that was washing Jesus' feet, so loved. So loved. He loves you. And when we experience his love, we can live in the world and not be of the world. We can be a saturated people that enter dry places and leave them saturated as they encounter kind compassion that's going to lead them to repentance, to transformation, to healing, to relationship with Jesus. Can we all lift our hands? God, we want to be those who are saturated and we want to be those who are compassionate and we want to be those who are kind and we want to fill your heart for people. God, let us not look past what we don't understand, but let us look at it so that we can be changed by you and fill your heart for it so that we can engage it with compassion. It's not complicated. It's just have compassion. And God, I'm asking right now that we would experience an amazing, amazing harvest as we go out into the world and go and make disciples everywhere because we're going to go with kind-hearted compassion. And we're not going to judge the world, but we're going to tell them of the God who so loved the world. And everybody's...